0: This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was recorded at the studios of Co-op Community Radio on Thursday, March 5th. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. Well, I said it at the beginning of the episode, but it's worth reiterating. We're taping our show today as we do every week on Thursdays, a full 24 hours before broadcast. Given how fast moving the news is about the spread of coronavirus, chances are anything we have to say about it today is going to be outdated by tomorrow. So for now, we're steering clear of conversation about COVID-19, but we will certainly be tracking developments online at austinchronicle.com and in our weekly print issue. So for now, we will turn our attention to an election primary that is mostly, if not completely, in the books now. News editor Mike Clark-Madison is here to talk to us about who won and who lost on Super Tuesday and which races have gone to a runoff. Mike clark Madison, thank you for coming in.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Kim. How super was your Super Tuesday? It was pretty super. I was at Schultz Garden. We, the Austin Chronicle and Progress Texas, uh, had a progressive meetup at that venerable place where Democrats hang out on election night. And there were lots of people there. Candidates came by, elected officials came by, and... The former chair of the Travis County Republican Party came by. You may have heard of him. He's a guy named Robert Morrow. He's wearing a jester hat, was carrying a big sign, said Trump is a child rapist. He got bounced out of there by the constables. But he was celebrating because he won or is leading into the runoff on the Republican side for the State Board of Education, a job that he is well-suited for, I'm sure.
0: And, and we do have. I want to direct our our readers. We do have a photo from that yes, we that do. night. Although you had the pleasure of witnessing it in I, person
1: and talking to him, I asked him for comment on his SBOE victory, and he d- had declined.
0: And, and this is a guy who, despite having led the Travis County Republican Party, is no fan uh, among his fellow Republicans. No, in fact,
1: the chair of that party, Matt Kowiak, said on Twitter that they are going to defeat him in the run in the runoff on May 26th, or Matt will light himself on fire. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, not every race was that uh, sensationalist. Uh, Why don't you give us the big takeaways from Tuesday?
1: Sure. Well, in as you know, Texas was the marquee event for Super Tuesday nationally, and people were watching through the night to see how it would finish out between uh, former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren and former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg uh, the latter two of them doing very badly and ending – they have both ended their campaigns as of the time that we're talking. Uh, in Travis County and more specifically in Senate District 14, which is how they allocate delegates, Sanders was expected to do well, and he did. Uh, Warren was expected to do well, and she did. She got three delegates here out of five statewide. Um, And Biden wasn't expected to do well, and he did. On election day, Sanders and Warren got about as many votes as they had gotten in the early vote. But Biden got twice as many as he got in the early vote. And he ended up pulling into second place in Travis County. And that trend was pretty much the same statewide. And he ended up, of course, pulling into the lead and taking the state. Mm -hmm. So that happened— um, you could see some of the effects of that down ballot in, for example, the Senate race, the U.S. Senate race. Christina Cinsu-Ramirez from here in Austin, who is probably the most closely aligned to Bernie Sanders of the candidates in that race— Came close to, but ultimately failed to make the runoff. That's going to be between M.J. Hagar and Royce West.
0: And and M.J. Hagar um, is really popular around here. She is. Uh, she she had a pretty decisive first place finish. Yes, right? she's definitely
1: right. well in the lead now. And it's very it's questionable whether there was in fact an anti-M.J. vote that's going to consolidate in favor of Senator West, or whether people just didn't know. There were 12 candidates in that race, so sure. there's obviously a lot of people breaking um, – just making up their minds at the last minute. So, And
0: this is to challenge John Cornyn. This is so to challenge John Cornyn. Republican.
1: And so sh- that race, along with other races down ballot, are going to be going to a runoff, and that's not until May 26th. So for – a lot of these elections, they're just now starting over. Right. <clears throat> we thought we were done. <laughs> no, we're not done. Uh, and the, on the local level, and this is another race that pretty much matched the establishment versus the progressive wings of the Democratic Party with the district attorney race. Where incumbent Margaret Moore actually came in second to challenger Sanders and Dorsey, Warren and Dorsey, Jose Garza, who is the director of the Workers' Defense Project, which was founded by Christina Simpson-Ramirez, they will – Now, go head-to-head May 26th in the runoff. uh, Aaron Martinson, who came in third, has endorsed Jose Garza. They were both running strongly against Margaret Moore. However, the makeup of the electorate in May is going to be a lot different or has traditionally been a lot different than would be the case on Super Tuesday. So you're going to have probably a much older, much wider, probably more supportive of Moore electorate. To start with, and that's the the world in which uh, Jose Garza and other progressives who are in runoffs are going to have to bring out their voters against what would normally be the turnout trends.
0: So you're saying historically for runoff elections, there's just not the same kind of fervor. Where... It's
1: just not the same kind of fervor, but far fewer people and a far more traditional electorate than you see. I mean, this is the same way that Ted Cruz won the Senate seat back against David Dewhurst was the runoff for the primary ended up being very low turnout, and only his strong voters, who are the kind of people who always vote, were the ones who showed up. And so that's going to be something we'll see happen in the DA race. We'll also see it in the county attorney race, where Delia Garza, mayor pro tem, Uh, no relation to Jose, but also the progressive in that race is running against Lori Azulow, who is a current assistant county attorney. So the two women in that race went on to the runoff. There are also other races down ballot, particularly in the judicial races, where a trend that's been true in Travis County for a long time, which is that women tend to do well in the judicial races and that voters who don't really have a lot to go on in those races tend to prefer just the female candidate on the ballot. And we saw that in particular, a race involving a woman named Madeline Connor, who was a a very controversial candidate who had been identified in several courtrooms as a vexatious litigant, who was running against a very popular incumbent Judge Tim Shulock. And she managed to prevail at the very last minute. And so we're going to see that happen. Another incumbent judge, Ava Wahlberg, also lost to his female opponent. So uh,
0: just a reminder, while we're in the middle of this, uh, to our listeners that it is Co-op Spring membership drive, and volunteers are waiting for your call now at 512-472-5667. We could go on talking about this election a lot, but uh, an election, I should point out, that saw historic voter turnout. Uh, But there is another developing story right now that I wanted to ask you to give us just a quick little insight into what is coming.
1: Yes. And this is also going to involve the November election that the long awaited Project Connect plan for transit system that's going to be on most likely the November ballot is going to be formally revealed uh, to the city council on Monday and the capital metro board on Monday and is being revealed to media this weekend. So you'll be seeing it online at the Chronicle and at the Statesman. Uh, it is recommending light rail along Guadalupe and Lamar from the North Lamar Transit Center. So 183 in North Lamar down to approximately Stasney Lane in South Congress and then out from Republic Square across the river down Riverside to the airport. That would all be rail. Uh, Downtown, there would be a series of tunnels, so much of that would be underground and, as was pointed out, air-conditioned. There will also be a bus rapid transit that could be light rail in the future that would connect the current downtown station by the convention center to ACC Highland. And there would be extended service on the Red Line, including a new stop at the soccer station, and service on the Green Line commuter rail through East Austin, Eastern Crescent, up to Colony Park.
0: And this this Project Connect, the modern transit system plan, that's going to be on the ballot in November, right?
1: Right. And everyone knows, and the... City and Capital Metro are making sure everybody knows that we're playing catch-up, that other cities have been investing in transit for years and we've been not, and several plants have failed. So this is a big, bold, expensive plan to get to a point where other places have had 20 years of head start. And so we're looking at a price tag that will be under, but almost, likely in the $10 billion range. Ouch. And how that's going to be funded is you know still up in the air. There will be federal funding that they're assuming is going to happen, but that's really the most uh, detail they're going to get into on Monday is how they plan on paying for it.
0: All right. Well, I'm sure, Mike, you will be back in the studio with us in the coming weeks and months to talk more about this. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Austin Chronicle Show. We're in the studios of Co-op Community Radio, 91.7 FM in Austin, and live streaming through KOOP.org. I'm your host, Kim Jones, editor of the Austin Chronicle. And I am so excited to introduce our next guest in the studio. Chronicle readers already know Emily Beta's name. She's been a longtime contributor to our food section, and she wrote the popular Dear Glutton column, which was sort of an advice column slash restaurant recommender slash celebration of responsible hedonism. Uh, a little bit hard to describe, but a little bit hard to describe, but always delightful to read. Emily is currently on a book tour for her debut novel, The Body Double, The Body Double, and she'll be at Book People Friday night at 7 p.m. for a reading and conversation with food editor Jesse Cape. And she is here with us today to talk about the book. Emily, thank you for joining us.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you.
0: We're really happy to have you here. Uh, The book is beautifully written, um, and it also totally creeped me out, which is a a huge compliment in the best way possible. So why don't you give our readers the spoiler-free elevator pitch?
2: Well, first of all, sorry for any nightmares. I uh, apologize. (laughs) So the book is basically about this woman who gets recruited from a small Midwestern town to be the body double of a reclusive actress and ends up slowly taking over her life okay yeah
0: (laughs) that's that's the 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 pithy pitch of it absolutely yes doesn't really hint at the creepiness and I want you to sort of explain a
2: little bit more about where it goes or maybe what the influences were that definitely yeah I think there's a really extreme claustrophobia there something that I was really interested in in writing it is the idea of identity and the idea of performance and so I would say huge influences would definitely be like Hitchcock especially Vertigo um just there's so much amazing pop culture having to do with like what it means to be a person and how you create this version of yourself that you send out into the world as an avatar. I mean, David Lynch is another huge inf- influence, obviously, like Mulholland Drive. Uh, I just really love that idea of the constructed self. Mm-hmm. And you grew up in California, right? I did, yeah. I grew up in the Hollywood Hills, which is where this book is primarily set. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I lived
0: in the Hollywood Hills very briefly. Uh. Not the fancy Hollywood Hills. The, i described yeah, it neither. as the <laughs> land of
2: like the, the sort of C-grade sitcom stars. Oh, definitely. All those um, like, pools with the fake palm trees around them. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So did you grow up around the movie industry? Yeah, yeah. Both of my parents were film editors and that's how they met. And my mom's now a midwife and my dad's still in film. And so I really grew up spending a lot of time in editing rooms and we would live on location often and kind of just that Whole world was really part of the background noise of my life growing up. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh,
0: so you know, obviously the the industry feeds into this, but it's also just like celebrity culture.
2: Yeah, which is another thing I'm fascinated by, and I think that something that's so interesting is the way that celebrity culture has begun to sort of erode the boundaries of what is normal behavior and what isn't. Like if you look at social media and how we all are so dedicated, and I'm no exception, obviously, to presenting this curated version of ourselves, and that used to be the realm of just celebrity, right? But now the definition of celebrity is just expanding more and more and more and more. In a way, it's like this huge, it's like the thing, you know, just swallowing <laughs> everybody up. Mm-hmm.
0: So, where, when did you start the novel? When was the? I assume this was years in the making.
2: Yeah. Oh my God. Like, like many novels, I think <laughs> that is very true. Uh, it's funny. This actually started from a piece of flash fiction that I wrote just before moving to Austin. When did and, that happen? Uh, that was about four years ago now. You came here yeah. for grad school? I came here for grad school, yeah. Uh, I was down at Texas State in San Marcos, and I was like, i got to live in Austin. That's <laughs> so much fun. No offense to San Marcos, which is a fascinating place, but it, I really love Austin, and I really love the experience of living here. And I think having a little bit of distance from Los Angeles, too, helped me look at the city a little more objectively. And maybe part of what inspired me to write this book was that feeling of homesickness. But then also, Jennifer Dubois, who's an amazing Austin. writer writer. writer who we all love and just a a fabulous influence on me and my mentor she saw the short story that I had written that was sort of a similar plot to this and she was like what are you doing this is a novel there's too much going on here so I completely went down the rabbit hole and now here we are. Just a
0: reminder to our listeners, it is spring membership drive time. And if you like what we do here and you want to support Co-op FM, give a call to 512-472-5667 to donate now.
2: And I'll say for all of you nostalgic former Austinites like me who love listening to KOP online, you also have an obligation. Get it together, guys. Give them a call.
0: I always wonder with first novels if it is... I don't know, something that something that the author has been living with consciously or unconsciously all their life, and it's like the first one is the one that you absolutely have to get out of your system.
2: Well, do you want to hear something really funny, actually? No, I don't, actually. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I'll just stick to something boring. You want to talk about <laughs> tax returns, maybe? I don't know. Um, well, this actually is not my first novel. Oh. So my first novel, I spent really years writing, and it was uh-huh. really, really personal. It was about my great aunt, I mean, it's a fictionalized account, obviously, about my great aunt, who was an incredible influence on me. I actually have her, um, her ring on right now. And she was just this amazing person. I spent all these years researching this very personal novel. And then my car was broken into. And my laptop was stolen. And I hadn't backed it up, because I was like <sighs> 20. I didn't know... And so it was gone. And then about a year later, I got a message on my like Facebook other inbox mm-hmm. from this man who lived in Bogota, Colombia. And he said, I bought your laptop at a flea market and I read your book and I really like it. And I'm a poet. I know how important these things are. Do you want me to send it back to you? And oh, I said, no. Wow. I was like, I think I wrote that book for you. I think that book was for you. <laughs> Emily, you're killing me. I know, isn't that hilarious? (laughs) But then, then the final twist, I told that story recently to my partner, and he was like, oh, I have a copy of that. I'd emailed it to him. I totally forgot. So maybe I'll return to it sometime. Oh my god. I feel like we just got a, a book in and of itself. I know, right? Talk about a, a surprising twist. That's incredible. Have you have you, have you revisited it? You know so I have it, but maybe maybe I should. Maybe wow. now's the time. Yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll see. That's really cool. Well, okay, well let's focus for now
0: on, on the on one the at in hand. Front of us, yeah. Yes. Uh, I saw the Los Angeles Times gave it a terrific review that I just heard. came out. i heard. Yeah. I'm so
2: neurotic that I like can't Really? Anything. I'm just I'm just deciding to believe that like anyone who reads this, that's it's such a beautiful gift and I think there's like an incredible relationship between author and reader that I really strive to cultivate in my work, but I like don't really wanna know about it. I'm too scared. (laughs) So I heard it was really great and thank you so much, Los Angeles Times. (laughs) I'm too scared to read it. But yes. okay so
0: you know you worked you you wrote for us for a few years has that yeah i don't know is is, talk to us about sort of the difference between the the writing you were doing for the newspaper and what the fiction writing is like for you is it a different process 100
2: percent. i think it occupies a totally different emotional space but i really think that my time at the chronicle really did have a huge influence on my process with this novel i mean I don't know if you know this, but I started writing for you guys because I basically cold called Brandon Watson. <laughs> I was like out at a bar and I was like, I have an idea for this advice column. And my friend was like, oh, yeah, I think that would be good in the Chronicle. And I just like basically harassed him. I was mm-hmm. like, what's up? I'm writing for you now. <laughs> and he was like, I guess you are. OK, sure. And it just kind of spelled a lot of control from there. But just having that community of people who are so interested in exploring a city, through words and in creating this space where other people can find out about like events and shared experiences and creating this community through writing I think is a huge, huge influence, mm-hmm. absolutely. And that's why I love The Chronicle and that's why I have so much love for community newspapers, you know, the world over. I think it's a real art form. Yeah. Yeah. So are you of Austin anymore? Are you fully back in California? I'm kind of a little yeah. bit of both. I still yeah. have a house here okay. um, over on MLK 183. Come visit me, guys. Um, I won't tell you where. But uh, yeah, I still have a house here, and I come back here pretty frequently to just like come, and, come mm-hmm. and hang out. But I'm mostly in California now. That's where my family is. So,
0: Is Los Angeles your muse, do you think?
2: I think maybe, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe so. I know it's a controversial city, but I really love it. I yeah. Think it's, I think it's such a weird, dream space where people can really create their own reality and I think in a way it's very similar to Austin in that way Mm. you know that there's so much of it and there's so much room for for self creation and myth making here so what is next for you um actually I just finished a first draft of another book which you will love if you like being creeped out because it's kind (laughs) of a horror somehow I don't know how that happened it's very creepy it's about this uh plague that causes women to lose the ability to speak and this young couple buys a abandoned summer camp to try to escape from it and it just goes, it goes very badly for them. Oh my goodness. So I'm trying to get a handle on that. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I don't
0: know. That sounds great. Well, for now, I guess we're just gonna, we'll have to satisfy ourselves with the body double, which is out now. And you are going to be reading tonight,
2: right? Yes. I'm so excited in conversation with Jessie, who is my editor at The Chronicle and just like a gem of a human. I'm so excited. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I too think she is a gem of a human. Who doesn't?
0: Well, well, good luck. with the book. I'm just I'm so excited for you. We've loved having you write for us at the Chronicle. And you know, I just hope you have the best success. With Thank this you so thing. much.
2: Thank you for giving me this home to, you know, practice my craft and I just have so much love for y'all. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Emily. And that is a wrap for another episode of the Austin Chronicle show. Thanks to my guests today, Mike Clark Madison and Emily Beta. Thanks also go to our engineer Evan Hearn and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. And thanks to you listeners for tuning in.